Hey, this is Rob Harder with Making Your World Better, a nonprofit leadership show where real stories from real people who are coming up with real solutions to solve society's biggest challenges. What does it take to be an effective nonprofit leader today? How do people fundraise in an economy that is constantly in flux? How do you relate to board members in a way that inspires them to make a difference? What are the best practices that separate effective nonprofits from others? It is my hope that through these episodes, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear real stories from real leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy this series as together we hear how they're making their world better. Well, welcome to the show, everybody. Wow, what a year last week has been, huh? Now, I know that phrase is not original with me, and it's going around social media, but it is so true. It feels like so much has happened and so much has changed in such a short amount of time. I know I've been continually telling my kids that I've not seen or I've not experienced anything in my lifetime quite like this COVID-19 crisis. And I have a feeling you have had the same experience. And I also have a feeling that you're maybe a bit rattled, perhaps even scared. Uh, Maybe you're unsure of what the future holds and what you need to do next. Well, in light of that, I wanted to dedicate this next episode of my podcast to interviewing a few key nonprofit leaders around the country who I've asked to give us a snapshot of what's going on in their neck of the woods, so to speak, what nonprofits are doing in their community, and what, if anything, is giving them hope during this time of severe crisis. So I've got several guests today on my show. Uh, On the show, first of all, my first guest, Mark Kennedy Shriver. Mark has been a guest before on the show and has a tremendous amount of leadership experience to share. He currently serves as the Senior Vice President of U.S. Programs and Advocacy for Save the Children. And my second guest is Beth Cantor. Beth is out of San Jose, California, and she's an internationally acclaimed master trainer, blogger, and speaker, and best-selling author. My third guest is David Revelle. David is the CEO of the Jewish Board of Family and Children's Services in New York City, and the Jewish Board is the city's largest social services organization. My fourth guest is Kate Rubelkava. Kate is the CEO of the Utah Nonprofits Association, and she also serves on the board for the National Council of Nonprofits located in Washington, D.C. And my final guest is Carly Fiorina. Carly is the former presidential candidate, many of you have heard her name before, of course, and the former CEO of Hewlett Packard. After she ran for the presidential nomination, she next pursued her current philanthropic efforts by starting the Unlocking Potential Foundation. So here's my hope. Uh, Wherever you are, whatever you're facing today, whatever the future holds for you, that this episode would be equally inspiring and informative. Enjoy today's show. Mark, thanks so much for taking time to be on the show. You know, I really wanted this show to be about um, asking a few key nonprofit leaders around the country to give us a snapshot of what's going on in their neck of the woods. And I know you live in the D.C. area, so maybe to start out, give us a sense of how things are going there in D.C. and through your organization, Save the Children. Well, what we're seeing with Save the Children's work all across the country, we work in rural communities. And uh, almost every school that we work in, uh, it's almost 100% free and reduced meals. So that means that the families and the children are living in poverty, obviously, and they're getting breakfast and lunch, uh, at least from the federal government uh, through, the, through the food feeding program. And we're seeing a lot of these very poor rural communities and uh, superintendents that are struggling with resources that were very much on the edge already, now worried about how to get food to kids and families uh, that relied on, on school to feed them. Um, and, you know, a lot of our families don't have cars. A lot of them live, in, you know, 5, 10, 15 miles away from the school. So 
in some areas you're hearing about grab-and-go where families are coming to the school, grabbing their food, and then leaving. But for poor families, that's a huge struggle. So we're trying to work to make sure that there's flexibility in federal funding, that we um, our schools, and, and supplemented by private resources from Save the Children, <clears throat> can fund you know uh, vans or school buses, pay for the gas, pay for the drivers to drive the food, uh, along the school bus route to get that food to to kids and families, uh, you know, enough for a couple of days at a at a pop. Um, people are being innovative, they're being creative, uh, but there's a lot, as you know, Rob. There's a lot of anxiety. Uh, there's a lot of people that are scared, uh, and, and rightfully so, because we don't have enough testing equipment, we don't know enough about the virus, and uh, there's been mixed signals from various levels of government. Well, there is no doubt that a lot of us are unsettled. And as I was talking to you about earlier, you know, here in Utah, we experienced an earthquake last week on top of the COVID-19 outbreak. So it really pushed people to another level of anxiety and fear. So give us a sense of what the nonprofits are doing in your area, including your own. I'm wondering, have they shut down most of the nonprofits? Maybe there's some food pantries that are open um, on a basis of a grab-and-go system, perhaps. What are the nonprofits doing to respond to this in a positive way in your area? So we, you know, Save the Children partnered with um, Share Our Strength, No Kid Hungry, and we've, uh, with really the guidance of Jennifer Gardner and Amy Adams, um, they're reading books online, and they've gotten uh, dozens of other folks to read books online. Chris Pratt just read one with my niece, um, Catherine Schwarzenegger, uh, her book, and we're asking folks to maybe give five or ten bucks or whatever they can afford, and we're using that money to get um, food to kids and also educational equipment to children all across the country. So we're trying to feed their bellies and feed their minds at the same time. So there's a lot of creativity. Uh, you know, people go to Instagram, save with stories. It's all over there. Um, you know, obviously Jennifer Gardner's got it up on her Instagram account. Um, so you're seeing efforts like Save the Children partnering with other organizations to try to raise resources to get food out uh, through whether it's a food bank or through schools or through nonprofits uh, like the Christian Center. How do we get food and resources? Because I'm sure you're being taxed, right, um, mm-hmm. heavily by the demand, and we need to get people fed and help address the panic because um, I think if we work together, there's nothing as a country and as a people we can't do. Um, so there's a lot of creativity going on out there. Um, there's, as you said, a lot of panic and anxiety, but I think the more we work together and the more uh, outreach there is, I think Americans are incredibly generous uh, and innovative people. Well, really well said. You know, And speaking of your nonprofit, Save the Children, it sounds like you're still operational. I'm assuming that many of your staff are working remotely, perhaps. Uh, it sounds like you're still able to deliver the food and services to those who need it, though. Is that true? The headquarters staff are all working remotely for Save the Children. Um, there are staff that are in the field. Uh, you know, in, in all the states where we work that are, you know, working with schools um, to try to get that the resources out uh, to them, uh, you know, gifting kind. I mean, there's a lot of families that don't have, you know, games, educational equipment in their home, uh, much less, you know, food. So we're trying to, you know, stimulate the brains, help the parents uh, with content, uh, but also make sure that they're fed. Um because, uh, you know, it's a combination. If you're hungry, you're not going to learn. And, uh, you know, if you're fed and you have no resources to books to read, um, 
you know, uh, books to be read to you on the Internet, uh, like the Share With Stories opportunity, uh, it goes together, and that's what we're trying to do. Well, you've already mentioned this a bit, that there is already a lot of creativity going around in this country in terms of the response to this COVID-19 crisis. And there's no doubt we're living in very challenging times, unprecedented times, as many people have said. So, Mark, what is giving you hope these days in the midst of these very difficult times as you see people respond to this? It's very discouraging. I read the other day about a priest in Italy who had been given a ventilator by his parishioners, and he gave it to uh, a young person who he didn't know. The young person has recovered, and the priest has died. And I just think it's so sad and it's so beautiful that people are willing, um, you know, to give up their life to potentially to save their fellow human beings, I think is beautiful. I think, you know, my daughter had a girlfriend uh, at UVA, University of Virginia, and she was going to run the, the marathon down there in Charlottesville. It's been canceled, so she said she's going to run a marathon and give all of the proceeds to save the children in our work here in the United States. Um, she's going to run it by herself. And I bet she's going to end up raising so much money because people are looking for those stories of hope. And, and you know, Catherine Ultimus doing that is raising People's hope. I just think that's a beautiful story. Um, and you see these, the priest, uh, Catherine Ultimus, uh, you know, I know families are uh, connecting more on Zoom and online than they ever have in the past. And, uh, you know, I know there are families that don't have those resources. Uh, and there are a lot of families that are struggling, you know, without health insurance, without sick days, um, and in many cases without jobs. So we're praying for them and we're trying to get through Save the Children our resources out to those families all across the country. Well, you're doing really good work, Mark. Thanks so much for all you're doing to make sure people who have been particularly hit hard in this crisis are getting what they need through Save the Children. Now, how can my listeners find out more about Save the Children and all of your efforts during this time? Sure, they can go to savethechildren.org. The campaign we're doing now with uh, No Kid Hungry is called Save, S-A-V-E, with stories. And that's all over Instagram. We have our own Instagram page. And as I said, Jennifer Gardner, who's on our board, and was instrumental in getting this off the ground is um, putting it on her Instagram account. It's great content for little kids and for parents who are working at home so that the kids aren't playing video games, but they're actually having books read to them. It's great. Um, And we're trying to raise some money and pound it right back into the communities uh, from whence it came. So uh, I want to thank you, Rob, for helping to spread the word and for all the good work you're doing in, in Park City. Absolutely. Thanks again for your time, Mark, and being on the show. Beth, thanks for being on the show today. Really appreciate you calling in. I really wanted to to start an episode uh, where we're checking in with nonprofit leaders all over the U.S. in order to get really a snapshot of what's going on around the country and to find out specifically what you're seeing in your neck of the woods. Now, you live in the San Jose area, right? And give us a sense of how things are going there in San Jose. Sure. So I'm in... um I, I live in, and work out of, <laughs> out of San Jose, California, where my husband works, and my children are now going to college because <laughs> their, their semesters have been um, a transfer to virtual. And I'd say we were a hot spot early on, so we got this, we had cases right after Seattle. So what's happened is the public health messaging has, you know, gotten more and more uh, serious, and so now we're not allowed to, re- we're not allowed to go anywhere. Um, unless we're going to get medical attention or to the grocery stores. The grocery stores um, only allowing, uh, you have to wait in line, and they only allow, like, wait in line but six feet apart, and they only allow a few people in in the store at a time. 
it's really hard to get deliveries because you can't get Amazon or Instacart unless you win the lottery. I felt like I won the lottery because I got one last week. Um, and in our county, as opposed to other counties and other places, I, I was just reading an article about how the community spread is in many different micro hot spots, all distributed around the county. Part of that was from, they're saying that um, cause a couple of TSA officers at the airport were infected, and then people were coming in and they dispersed to a lot of different areas. So the hospitals are starting to run out of supplies. In fact, I have um, asthma and allergies, and I have N95 masks for when we get fires. And I had a box of 10, and I, I, I dropped them off at the, hotel, uh, at the hospital as a donation. But construction workers are donating their masks, and there's a lot of um, mask-making <laughs> sewing circles. So, you know, everything's pretty much disrupted here, and people are stressed out and scared and you know, with good reason. It's just things aren't normal. Beth, you're right. There's no doubt that all of us are unsettled. Um, and it does seem like you've been particularly hit hard and early with this COVID-19 crisis. So I'm curious, uh, what are the nonprofits doing in your area? I mean, perhaps they've been shut down. I mean, are there food banks that are still open? What are nonprofits doing to respond to this crisis? Yeah, the food banks are trying. There's just an emergency. Um, lucky we have Facebook as a neighbor here. And Facebook, uh, Charles Sandberg did a big fundraiser to emergency supplies. Um, in my family, I thought, I'll, I'll give you a personal example. Um, you know, I have two kids now suddenly at home. <laughs> and I thought as a, a bride to empty, empty the dishwasher, we could adopt a dog from one of the local shelters because, you know, it's important to do that. So we just did a virtual senior dog adoption. So we got to see the dog through FaceTime get its history, and now we're um, waiting to rendezvous at a park so we can pick up the dog from six, week, six, six feet away. So the, so the shelters are actually, the, um, they can't take any more dogs in, but the good news is, is that a lot of them, are, they have them out for um, foster, fostering, and, a, and there's a big demand now for dog adoption. They do have people doing um, meal, meal delivery, not, not enough to handle a demand. If you think about it, of all the elderly people who can't get out, you know, and don't have people help, you know, family there with them, the big need. The biggest impact has been on the local hospitals, which have had shortages of supplies, and they're just starting to get overrun here, um, and they're building field hospitals. Right now, what I've seen um, with my own eyes is we did take the drive by one of the local hospitals, and they had put up a whole bunch of tents outside in the parking lot, and that's where they were triaging patients. Um, I think they're looking at places like, I know in Seattle, hotels are being converted. And um, like I know in Seattle, they took over a soccer field and are building these sort of temporary hospitals. Now, I know you've already mentioned this a bit with your earlier answer, but what are the greatest needs right now in your community and how are people responding? I don't even know where to start. <laughs> I could talk about, I mean, more broadly, the nonprofit community that I work in. And I've seen a lot of people pulling together. A lot of um, this is actually also happening here in neighborhoods that people are. Um, I see it on next door. I've seen like I call them mutual aid spreadsheets <laughs> on their up, up on Google, and different neighborhoods and communities are self-organizing. Like, hey, I have some extra sanitizer. Do you need any? I'll drop it down on your door. Can somebody go, you know, help get some groceries for my mom? She's in your neighborhood. 
you know, things like that. There's a lot of that going on, and that's kind of heartening. And a lot of, actually, a lot of really nice things about spreading kindness. Like thing, you know, people creating like a form, a template for a card that you can slip under your neighbor's um, door <laughs> and say, hi, you know, here's my number, here's my email, can I do anything for you? Um, the other thing that happened, they've closed all the parks and the playgrounds because they don't want people to gather. You can go outside and walk your dog or, you know, walk around the block, get exercise as long as you maintain social distance. But you can imagine all oh, the school clothes and families were all working at home and how stressful that can be. So one neighborhood I saw here did this thing called chalk walk. They had go outside with your chalk, sidewalk chalk, and give a message of hope and put it on the sidewalk. So that's been kind of nice. Well, there's no doubt about it. There's a lot of discouraging news right now. I mean, every time we look at our alerts on our phone or when we turn on the TV or we see the headline on our online news channels, there are certainly a lot of things to be afraid of. But I wanted to turn that around today by asking you this question. What is giving you hope in the midst of this crisis? Well, I see this sort of suddenly remote, <laughs> you know, all of a sudden crash course and you've got to go remote. I've been working with nonprofits for over 35 years and helping them with digital transformation. And now all of a sudden, boom, you have to do virtual meetings. You have to have virtual delivery in your programs and services. And some organizations have been further along in that journey, but still everyone's kind of scrambling. But I'm, but there's amazing uh, creativity coming out. I'm seeing all kinds of things um, with nonprofits figuring out different ways to deliver their programs and services or internal staff communication. So I think, like, when we finally can come back together face-to-face, in the, you know, again, and I believe that will happen, they will have developed a, so much capacity from uh, digital that their work will be more efficient and effective. And um, so I see that as a total positive. And also I, I see a lot of just innovation and creativity that's coming out of the creative destruction. So I just think, you know, because things are so difficult, I think we also need to uh, take care of ourselves a little bit more. And, like, I've been asking myself, like, reflection questions every day, like, what sense of normal am I getting up today? Um, what, how am I going to get myself outside and take a walk? How am I moving my body? Uh, how, what am I, how am I creating beauty? Or who am I going to connect to um, or um, t- check in on? Or, and my, the last one, which is my favorite, um, what rainbow will I eat today? <laughs> Not just healthy food, but what rainbow will I think about that gives me some hope and promise for what we'll be like at the other end of this? Uh, thanks for that, Beth. And now, is there anything else you want to share? Um, sure. If you're, of course, your audience is all uh, nonprofits. And one of the really nice things that happened, I, I set up a structure to crowdsource resources for nonprofits. Uh, using the hashtag NPCOVID19, and there's this amazing Google Doc. Um, I'll send you the link so you can share that with folks. Use that if they need to put together resources or just go through and find what they need. Beth, thank you again for being on the show and sharing your perspective during this unprecedented time. Truly hang in there and stay safe. 
Okay, so my next guest is David Ravel. He is the CEO of the Jewish Board of Family and Children's Services in New York City. David, thank you so much for being on the show today. I know you must be buried with all of the challenges swirling around you. Uh, we've all heard from the news that New York City is the epicenter of this virus outbreak, of course. And with your work at the Jewish Board, I mean, you're at the very center of that epicenter, if you will. So just give us an update. Uh, what are, what's going on there in your neck of the woods, so to speak? And give us a perspective of how things are going in New York right now. Sure. Um, well, New York City uh, is, in fact, the epicenter right now. That will change over time, uh, the public health experts tell us. Um, but for now, we're we're dealing with the full throes of it. So depending on the kind of nonprofit organization that you are, you're facing very different challenges. If you are an arts or cultural organization that's highly dependent on earned revenue, you're closed, and most, if not all, of your staff are furloughed and laid off. Uh, only the very largest and well-financed organizations have been able to avoid that. If you work in the health and human services space, as the Jewish Board of Family and Children's Services does, uh, your challenges depend on the kind of work you do. So, for example, if you are a food pantry whose business model is you count on leftover food from restaurants and then make those available to people who need it, uh, you're stuck because all the restaurants in New York are closed. Uh, if you are a nonprofit agency that provides direct service like a child care center, you are probably also closed. So just at a time when New Yorkers need the social safety net, um, that, that safety net is fraying. Now, you've already mentioned this before, but from what you're seeing in the New York area anyway, in terms of how nonprofits are responding to this unprecedented crisis, what are nonprofits doing? Because I know some of them can't do much because they're not an essential service per se, but what are the nonprofits that are available and able to, maybe the humanitarian-driven nonprofits, what are they doing right now in response to this crisis? Well, I can talk about the experience at my agency, the Jewish Board. We have two general types of programs, residential programs where people are living in facilities that we own and operate, people such as survivors of domestic violence, kids in the child welfare system who have been abused or neglected, adults with histories of homelessness and mental health struggles. That's one kind of service, residential services. And then we have community-based services, mental health clinics that people can walk into in their neighborhood, school-based programs uh, in public schools and other types of schools. So the impact on our services are very different depending on the kind of facility you're looking at. So in a residential facility, those facilities are home to people. So those facilities need to remain open. And like everyone else in New York, the residents of those facilities are basically staying inside. The staff need to come and go because they're 24-hour facilities. So we have different shifts of workers, and we're starting to see some staff shortages in those residential facilities for a couple of reasons. First of all, we have staff who are themselves uh, infected with the coronavirus. We have staff who have been exposed to people with coronavirus and they're required to quarantine for a seven or 14 day period depending on the circumstances. And then we have uh, some staff who are just 
unable to show up to work for a variety of different reasons. So we have had to bring on uh, a large number of temporary staff very quickly. We started a program called Help Corps, which invites people to essentially volunteer in our facilities, except we're going to be paying them. We're going to be paying them minimum wage, but we'll be training them to do some basic tasks within these uh, facilities and uh, get them going quickly in order to supplement our staff. So that's sort of what's happening in the residential facilities. And thank goodness, as of the time of this phone call, we do not have a situation where we've had a case of coronavirus in one of those residential facilities. If we did, we would likely have to quarantine the residents um, and take some other safety measures. In the community-based programs, let's take, for example, mental health services that are typically delivered in person by therapists and social workers in physical buildings, clinic spaces, we are de uh, delivering those services remotely, telephonically, over video chat, and the state has given us permission uh, to do that on a temporary basis. Now, the irony of this is that as a field, we've been talking about the possibility of telephonic or remote delivery of services for years, and there are regulatory barriers and there are concerns about quality of care. And then all of a sudden, almost literally overnight, we are all started delivering these services uh, remotely. So uh, as, as one of my colleagues said, we're being forced into the future, and we are in the process of reinventing our business in the midst of this crisis. Now, I've received a lot of different calls um, for, you know, my community here in Park City, Utah. I'm sure you've gotten the same where people just want to help. You know, they want to do something and maybe they're not on staff with a nonprofit. But if there's someone who's listening today and wants to do something, how can people help? And of course, we want to keep safety on the forefront of our mind. But how can people do something to help you and help this work in a safe way? Well, there are three specific needs that we have at the Jewish Board. The first is supplies. Uh, we have uh, masks, gloves, cleaning supplies that we're going through at unprecedented rates. Our burn rate for masks, for example, is 2,000 a day, given the number of residential facilities we have and the number of staff and residents who live there. We are going through 2,000 masks a day. There is a national shortage of masks, if anyone listening um, has a has a lead on some mass uh, at reasonable prices. We're we're happy to to make that happen. So that's the first thing. The second thing is I did mention the the staff shortages. If people want to volunteer or are willing to become part of our help corps, they can go to our website JewishBoard.org. If they live in the New York City area, we will train you. We will assign you to one of our facilities. I'm very pleased to say that in just the first couple of days of this new initiative, we've had over 300 people sign up uh, to, to help. So we're very grateful for that. The third thing, which is uh, so basic, it, it, it may not even need to be mentioned, but it has to be mentioned, is we're all desperate for cash. We all are running additional expenses that were not anticipated. We all have less revenue 
than we were expecting, and we're all facing severe cash flow challenges that the city and the state of New York are able to help out with just at the margin. Um, so we are desperate for donations. And again, on our website at jewishboard.org, people can help us out. We've set up an emergency fund. We, of course, are not the only health and human services agency in New York City. And if somebody has a favorite charity, I would encourage them to donate to them as well. Now, well done. And that's the great ideas uh, for people that are listening. Now, you know, every day, every hour, in fact, we're inundated with bad news. I mean, scary news. I mean, news that even can cause us to feel panic. In all of this, um, this is a very negative and challenging environment, right, that we're all facing. I'm curious, though, from your point of view, uh, where are you finding hope in the midst of this crisis? Well, first of all, New Yorkers are tough. We're resilient. We went through 9-11, as did many other parts of the country. We've been through recessions. Uh, we know that we will get through this. We don't know if we're at the beginning or in the middle. We know we're not near the end, but we know that we will get through it. We've had the experience of getting through major crises before. But from a service delivery point of view, as I mentioned earlier, we've been forced to reinvent ourselves and try out all sorts of new things that I'm sure will persist and have value well after this crisis is over. The ability to develop, to uh, deliver services remotely or telephonically, now that it's been done and it's been proven that it can be done and people are benefiting from it, uh, it's hard to imagine how we would go back to a world where 100% of our services are delivered in bricks-and-mortar buildings like mental health clinics. So there's going to be a silver lining. It's hard for us to see it right now because, as you say, we are in the middle of it, but we appreciate the good wishes of you and your listeners. It, it certainly makes us feel like we can get through this together. Well, once again, David, thank you for all you are doing. You really are on the front lines. Thank you for your leadership. So we have Kate Rubelkava on the show today. Kate is the CEO of the Utah Nonprofit Association based in Salt Lake City, Utah. Kate, give us your perspective on how things are going and specifically tell us how nonprofits are doing in Utah. Yeah, this is a really interesting time for nonprofits in the state of Utah, in our community, and quite honestly, the sector as a whole across the United States. And what we know locally is that nonprofits are hurting uh, they're worried about their finance. They're worried about their finances. They're worried about access to capital and cash to pay their employees. And a huge piece of that worry stems from many nonprofits, a resounding majority of nonprofits having to cancel or postpone their fundraising events. I mean, this is the prime time for fundraising season right now in like the you know, start of the second quarter and rolling into the summer. And so many nonprofits have had to put a pause on that. And in many cases, it means that they're not going to generate the revenue that they were counting on when they planned for their budget. So nonprofits are concerned about that. They're concerned about their employees. And they're really concerned about what it means 
for the service delivery for their programming as well. So many nonprofits have multiple sources of revenue. I just talked a little bit about the postponing fundraising events. But the other component of it is that nonprofits, in order to thrive and succeed, we do programming at, at our organization. So unless you're set up to drastically shift what your program looks like, you're not able to actually serve the mission or the program in the way that you had intended because we are not going into our offices on a regular basis, which means we may or may not be serving clients directly or we're serving them in a different way that's outside of the confines of what we had originally outlined in our programming. And so we do work in exchange for money. It's really like basically how it works. And if nonprofit organizations are experiencing a decrease in their donations and contributions because of a loss of canceling a fundraising event, and they're not able to bring in any other revenue through programming grants or earned revenue that they might have, we're talking about a substantial hit in many nonprofit organizations' financial bottom line. You know, I've received so many calls from well-meaning people who just want to help. They want to do something. I'm sure you've received these calls as well. And as you talk with other nonprofit leaders, what is the best and most safe way people can get involved and support nonprofits during this time? I have some tangible things. One, stay home. Please stay home. Like, let's just flatten the curve and let's do our part to stay home. The second piece is if you have the ability to donate um, food to food pantries, food banks, that is very well needed so that we can make sure that there is food access out there. The other piece is continue to contribute financially to the nonprofits you know, love, and support on a regular basis. Right now, more than ever, nonprofit organizations are worried about how they're going to pay their staff and how they're going to keep operations running and how they're going to be able to continue to thrive once we pull out of whatever economic challenge this pandemic is going to force upon our communities. So we need to be able to have access to capital so that we can keep going. And that happens when donations continue to come through the door. And if you are a funder uh, at, at a larger scale, let's say you give a couple thousand dollars or you give large programming grants, I would very much consider and encourage you to consider changing those program grants into unrestricted dollars at an organization. Every organization leader knows how best to utilize any money that comes into their nonprofit organization in the best way possible to serve the mission of their organization. So it's critically important that we as residents in our communities that we continue with that cycle so that we're getting back into that wheel and contributing our money so that a nonprofit can continue to thrive. 
Well, you know, I really like what you had to say. Um, you know, as long as you trust the nonprofit, I mean, really, when you give to a nonprofit, they know best how to use that money. I know in my own nonprofit organization that I lead, it's so nice to be trusted with an unrestricted gift. And it's equally freeing to receive an unrestricted gift because then our organization can really maximize that gift in order to bring about the greatest use of that gift and give it to the most pressing needs. So, all right, one more last question. There is a lot of dire and discouraging news, right? A lot of news that even creates panic in a lot of us. And add that to the anxiety that we experience here in Utah. Both of us live in Utah. We experienced an earthquake last week on top of this COVID-19 crisis, which really rattled people to the core. So in the midst of all this chaos and fear and anxiety, where are you finding hope these days, Kate? I mean, are there good things that you're seeing that are coming out of this? This is such a wonderful question, and I'm so glad that it's part of the interview today because, as you mentioned, as a nonprofit leader myself and as a person, as a human, I have been shaken, right? Like, it has just been a really rough couple of weeks, and I live in a part of the valley where I'm getting aftershocks quite a bit, and yesterday there were quite a bit um, in a row, so... It was, it's been, it's been really trying. And when it gets to that point where I start, you know, my anxiety starts to increase a little bit and I'm starting to worry about what we're going to do financially or um, how we're going to adjust all of our programming, I really like to center back to uh, the beautiful weather outside because it looks wonderful out there right now. Um, in the Salt Lake Valley, it's blue skies. Um, and it helps center me a little bit to remind me that there are great things happening and there are things blooming within our communities. You know, flowers are coming out. But then on a more structural side, I think that as a country, we now have at least a framework for paid family leave and what it looks like for employers and employees so that we can continue the economic wheel moving down the line. Um, I am really excited about how nonprofit professionals have really stepped up and have adjusted and adapted. I find hope in how my team has been so responsive and so supportive of one another as we have all been working to make changes to how we work and how we adapt. And I'm finding you know, a lot of comfort in my neighbors and my friends and my family who are also reaching out to everybody to make sure that everybody is okay and to make sure that they have what they need. And, you know, these are really interesting. It's just an interesting time right now for all of us, but I think we have so much to offer as a sector because we are flexible and passionate and interested in helping one another that I really do think we're going to see, I don't know, it's like the light at the end of the tunnel is really going to come and it's not going to feel as um, dire. It's I think it's going to get more challenging for us. I, I really do think that we're going to have to hunker down and we're going to have to stay home and we're going to have to make sure that we adhere to the health guidelines. Um, but I think, you know, once we get into summer and into fall, I really do think that we're going to see a lot of really positive things come out of how we learned to adapt and work 
together and with each other in a very rapidly changing environment. Thanks again for sharing with us, Kate. For my listeners, how can they find out more about the Utah Nonprofit Association and find out more about you? Where would you send them? I would send them to our website, utahnonprofits.org, and we're also on all of your social media platforms at Utah Nonprofits, and we welcome people to come and connect with us about um, the training that they may have and resources that they may have as we adapt and change in um, a different environment. Well, thank you again, Kate, for being on the show today. Be safe. My final guest is Carly Fiorina. Carly is the former presidential candidate, many of you have heard her name before, of course, and the former CEO of Hewlett-Packard. After she ran for the presidential nomination, she next pursued her current philanthropic efforts by starting the Unlocking Potential Foundation. First of all, thank you so much for having me and having me back. You know, um, I think initially, honestly, what I was seeing was a lot of shock uh, obviously, this is a very unprecedented crisis in so many ways. Um, and yet, having led through many crises of the past, whether it was SARS or recession or dot-com bust, you know, all crises have certain things in common. And so one of the things they have in common is there's an initial reaction of sort of shock and disbelief. And in that first period of shock and disbelief, I think people tend to get paralyzed. Um, and my advice to people when they're feeling that paralysis is to sort of confront their worst fears, say them out loud, and deal with them. And we can talk about that in more detail if you'd like. Now I think we're moving into a phase where people are uh, accepting that we're going to be going through a different kind of time for some time. And so people are starting to plan for not only how do they survive these difficult times, but also what actions can they take now that may help them uh, when better times return. And it's in that vein that I see things that are really inspiring. You know, just this morning, um, there was an example. um, There's a classical orchestra in Rotterdam. And, you know, classical music isn't hip, and attendance at at classical music concerts is falling off around the world. This particular orchestra has decided that they were going to figure out a way to play Beethoven's Nights while separated and teleworking. <laughs> and so they did. So it was this amazing display of ingenuity and creativity and courage in difficult times. And it was just inspiring to everyone. This podcast is dedicated to nonprofits, specifically nonprofit leaders. Anything you're seeing in terms of what nonprofits are doing, how they're responding, and when it comes to leaders, you said earlier, this really does kind of reveal who true leaders are and what their leadership style is all about at the end of the day, at their core. Um, Give us some examples of what you're seeing around your neck of the woods and maybe even nationally when it comes to nonprofits and how they're responding to this. I've had several calls um, with a lot of nonprofit leaders. Um, over the recent weeks, and of course, we'll continue those. And 
what I'm seeing is there's this initial reaction, which is totally human. There's an initial reaction of, oh, my God, my donors are going to dry up. I can't serve my clients. What do I do with my employees? And those are very real fears. And yet, the good leaders are those who say, okay, I have to prepare myself for these difficult times. Perhaps it means I need to repurpose what my employees are focused on. How do I reach out in even more inventive ways to those that they that I serve? For example, the leader of one nonprofit I know says, look, there are certain kinds of work that we can't do anymore. Our employees can't do anymore because we cannot congregate and we cannot gather. However, there is a list of things that we haven't been able to do that we actually can do now during these difficult times, so we're going to repurpose our employees to focus on that. Another example would be that people have gotten very creative about how to reach out to donors and ask for help. And in some cases, the most effective ways to ask for help are to really personalize the appeal. And what I mean by that is show them, paint them a portrait of the client you're trying to serve. Who is that person specifically, in particular, that a donor can help sponsor, for example, during these difficult times? Can a donor sponsor an employee during these difficult times? These are times when we have to face the worst that can happen and prepare for that. But these are also times when good leaders say, you know what, I can strengthen my relationship with donors if I communicate with them in an appropriate way and I can reassure my clients that I'm going to be with them in these times as well as in better times. How do we, on the one hand, respond quickly um, when we're all you know, remote, we're working, maybe some of us are in an office, most of us are at home. Um, is there any ways you've found so far in the midst of social distancing to get these things done? Uh, give us some examples of what you've seen done or you're doing yourself. Well, you know, we, we put our, of course, like everyone else, uh, I, I closed our offices and put everyone on uh, to telework. And you're right, initially, if you're used to sitting around and brainstorming um, as a group face-to-face, uh, initially when you try and do that over the phone, it feels a little awkward. On the other hand, it's also true that uh, in some ways you can include even more people in the brainstorming when it's more virtual. Um, we've had some amazing teleconferences where all of a sudden we get more creative about, well, let's ask so-and-so to add on to the call. You know, sometimes when we're used to doing things all together, it's whoever's in front of us physically that we tend to ask for advice or opinion. When everyone is separated from everyone else, now we can be a little bit more broad-minded in thinking through, who do I actually want to hear from about this? No longer is their uh, nearness to me um, a constraint, actually. You can talk to anyone you want. And, of course, technology makes so many things possible. I mean, we're having um, teletown halls for clients and partners 
you're repurposing your podcast to talk about leadership through crisis. So I'm not trying to sound Pollyannish or overly optimistic here. There are real difficulties in telework. On the other hand, there are also some real opportunities to include others that we might have not thought about in the past to learn how to use technology in a really creative way that we may choose to continue to use technology in that way when better times return. I know there's been a lot of people reaching out to me locally, but I think this is happening all over the country. Say maybe uh, people that support nonprofits, but they want to bring food or they want to come and volunteer. But because of social distancing and trying to, you know, ex- reduce exposure points to say donated food at a food pantry. What any recommendations of people that are maybe sitting at home that they have to kind of do this remotely? Maybe they're not on staff and not having an opportunity to um, be part of some strategic planning. Although I like what you said, you can include more people. So maybe that's part Part of the solution. Is there anything else you'd recommend people that are sitting at home really wanting to do something, but perhaps they don't know how? Honestly, it is a time now to include donors in thinking. They have a point of view that's useful to you. Include your clients, those you serve. What do you need most now? How can we be most helpful to you now? What isn't working now? Those are voices you need to hear from, and now you can. Not in all cases, but in many cases. So, first of all, it's wonderful because I do think that's part of the American can-do spirit. When when the going gets tough, we kind of get going and try and think through how do I make an impact and make a difference. Um, so, the first thing that I would say, and this is advice you've heard me get give before, if you are connected with or attached to a nonprofit organization already, Reach out to someone in that nonprofit you know and ask them how you can help. They're going to have ideas. They may be different than the things you've done before. Maybe you can't cook and bring food to the food pantry. But maybe, for example, you could get on your email or your Facebook list and you could become an advocate for that nonprofit when better times return. You could tell your own story of why you love this nonprofit and why you have been someone who's donated your time or your money to this nonprofit and introduce them to a broader segment of your community so that when better times return, the people who know about this nonprofit will have broadened. That's one way you can help. Another way you can help is um, to lift people up in difficult times. You know, one of the things that happens in times like this and times of social distancing is people get isolated. So maybe just a phone call, a a word of care and compassion, um, reaching out to someone and saying, hey, I just wanted to let you know I'm here. I'm thinking about you. I know I can't see you as I normally do every Tuesday when I bring food and we chat, but I just want to see how you're doing. Those small acts of kindness and connection can have a big impact and can pay big dividends later. That's excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. Thanks for all you do nationally and uh, to support nonprofit leaders across the board. And we just wish you to stay healthy, stay safe, and thanks for taking time again. 
Well, thank you so much for having me again, Ron. I wanted to let you know that we are on iTunes. If you are wondering how to find out where we are, check us out on iTunes by typing Nonprofit Leadership Podcast or Rob Harder, and this podcast should show up. We also encourage you, when you go on iTunes, let us know what you think. Give us a review. Give us a rating. We would love to hear what you think of this podcast, and your feedback will help us expand this podcast to get it out to as many people as we can. You can also go online to listen to this podcast, either nonprofitleadershippodcast.org or my website, robharder.com. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep making your world better.